really touched my soul. And thank you, uh, Dr. Jason Allen, for inviting me to address uh, Midwestern Seminary. I see a number of former colleagues here. I have to tell you, when I was the academic dean here, I had a real sense of vision from the Lord that he was going to uh, create an even bigger seminary and a seminary that would have a reach uh, far beyond uh, this immediate area. And I am so thankful that the Lord fulfilled that vision, not in, during my ministry here, but certainly during the ministry of Dr. Jason Allen and Dr. Jason Ducing and this great faculty. And so thank you for being obedient to the Lord in the seminary that you've been building here. I bring you greetings from Southwestern Seminary and also from my church, Lakeside Baptist Church in Granbury, Texas. This morning, I'd like you to open your heart and put on your thinking cap at the same time. So I'd like to talk about a subject that most of you uh, probably already agree with, but I want to challenge you to make sure that you keep it. And that is the indispensability of biblical inerrancy. And uh, we're going to look at modernity's challenge to biblical prophecy. Uh, we're going to look to the fact that Peter had already spoken in Scripture to a similar challenge. We're going to look at Baruch Spinoza's challenge to biblical prophecy. Uh, we're going to look at Peter's defense of biblical truth and to the indispensability of truth and love, modernity. In its philosophy, hermeneutics, and theology has challenged the belief of many in the truthfulness of biblical prophecy. I was recently reminded while reading an essay by Wolfhard Pannenberg how much modernity attacks the trustworthiness of Scripture, especially with regard to its claims about Christ and the future of the world. Modernity put an end to the Jewish nation's hopes, especially its Messiah, and replaced the coming of his kingdom with human progress. Modernity divorced humanity from any true knowledge of eternity. Read Immanuel Kant for that. It replaced the resurrection of the body with the immortality of the soul alone. It, it replaced divine intervention in history with natural processes. It replaced divine providence with human advance. It elevated human rationalism as supreme and denigrated hope in divine revelation as superstitious. Gospel proclamation was replaced with general education. Modernity moved us away from God-centered forms of thought to humanity as the goal and the primary actor. It taught us not to be concerned with the final judgment and eternal heaven or eternal hell, but to be content with temporal freedom, reason, and morality. Pannenberg concluded his essay by drawing attention to one of the two most critical of modernity's challenges to the Christian faith. He recalled our need to pay attention to Christ as the end of all things. We must see the meaning of history, he says, to be constituted by its future completion, and moreover, by the anticipation of its end in the teaching of Jesus Christ on the imminent kingdom of God and in his resurrection. However, I want to expand upon Pannenberg with two laments. Most perniciously, modernity asks us to consider Jesus Christ primarily, if not exclusively, as human. Too many today, therefore, see him only as a good man. And this is why hope is failing in his second coming and the full visibility of his quite political kingdom of God. 
Alongside this diminishing of the coming king came the diminishing of the written and spoken word of God. Modernity, especially its historical critical method of Bible study, requires us to deny or at best ignore the divine aspect of Scripture. We who are scholars have been told to treat Scripture merely as human if we wish to be taken seriously in the academy. But this coordinated challenge to Christ, Scripture, and eschatology is nothing new. Indeed, it's very old. Peter, in his second epistle, previously warned us with these words, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2. Peter had many such things to say about these bold, arrogant people, he said. For instance, they slander the glorious ones. They slander what they do not understand. By uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. The challenge Peter, Peter spoke against concerned an eschatological heresy based in an epistemological error. And both of these components undermined Jesus Christ's historical importance. The eschatological heresy came in chapter 3 and verse 4 when they asked, these opponents asked, where is his coming that he promised? They denied Christ was the Lord of history through challenging his promise. The epistemological error was seen in chapter 3, verse 7, when they denied that the Word of God both created the world in the beginning and ensured the judgment of the world at the end. They challenged his rule by challenging his Word. But Peter answered this twofold challenge against the rule of Christ and the truthfulness of his Word. He offered a twofold response. And so if you would, look in your Bible at 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll begin in verses 16 through 18. I'm going to summarize there and then read it in a little bit. But Peter said that he and the other apostles had witnessed the glorious transfiguration of Jesus. And they heard the voice of God declare Jesus to be the Father's Son. So they had this experience, and that's how they know. But in verses 19 through 21, Peter appealed to the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Bible as the guarantor of truthfulness. Listen to this text carefully, for it demonstrates the indispensability of the truth of biblical inerrancy. Beginning in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Before expositing Peter's response to the challenge of his day against Christ and prophecy, we should explore the beginning of modernity's very similar challenge to Christ and prophecy. So let's turn to the European origins of the historical critical method, a little history. In his book on the rise of this method, an English bishop, Stephen Neal, blamed the Germans. But in his book on the rise of the same method, a German scholar... Uh, Henning Graf Revelitlo 
argued the English were culpable. However, this American is going to argue that the Dutch were first. So let's look at Baruch Spinoza's challenge to biblical prophecy. Baruch Spinoza was born in 1632 into a Jewish family that had fled the Portuguese Inquisition to become merchants in Amsterdam. You can visit the place where his synagogue, once the golden center of Sephardic European Judaism, stood. Alas, between 1940 and 1945, the German Nazis eradicated their existence. All that remains is an ebony monument standing by the River Amstel, across, by the way, from the Anabaptist Bakehouse where the first English Baptist congregation was formed. The Jews and the Baptists share the distinction of finding freedom for their religion in 17th century Amsterdam. Both were refugees of clerical tyranny. However, the Jews themselves were not entirely free from intolerance, just as Baptists have not always followed our laudable and necessary convictions regarding the sacred dignity of the human person and universal religious liberty. In what was described by Stephen Nadler, Spinoza's most recent biographer, as the harshest writ of harem ever produced, pronounced on a member, the synagogue cast out their 23-year-old prodigy. Standing in front of these holy scrolls, the rabbis declared, no one is to communicate with him orally or in writing or show him any favor or stay with him under the same roof or come within four cubits of his vicinity. The writ of excommunication does not describe what they found so horrible. But Baruch was not merely kicked out of his synagogue. He was cut off from his own family and from the economic relations that had hitherto uh, sustained his life. Other contemporary sources tell us he was betrayed by two friends who begged him to describe his belief in the eternality of the world. Admittedly, Baruch's view of nature and general revelation was way too big. But the hearts of his own friends, teachers, and family were way too small. Alas, religious hate was in the air. Roman Catholics had burned many Anabaptists in previous decades in the area. The Dutch Reformed Church was riven between those who sought to wield the state sword against heresy and those who wished to shed the bonds of predestinarian orthodoxy. While the Dutch Reformed and the Roman Catholics fought vicious wars in the Low Countries, eventually creating two nations, Belgium and the Netherlands, various sects or dissenters and freethinkers begged for space to exist. The 1579 Union of Utrecht even promised religious freedom for every individual. Some took that hope seriously while others tried to squash it. In 1668, Spinoza watched a close friend of his, Adrian Korbog, publish a book that ridiculed with biting wit the clergy's pretensions to authority in religion and in the state. Korbog undermined the clergy by encouraging people to study the Bible as a human book accessible to reason. He also denied such fundamental Christian doctrines as the Trinity. Amazingly, Korbog boldly put his name on the book. The Reformed clergy of Amsterdam could only fulminate against anonymous heresy, but they knew who this was, and they clamored for justice. A religious friend of Korbog betrayed him while he was hide, hiding in nearby Leiden. 
cast into the notorious Rasp House, a prison known for its harshness and its ability to put to death its prisoners, he perished a year later. Spinoza suffered profoundly from Korbog's death, the death of his friend. Earlier in 1665, Spinoza wrote an English natural philosopher, Henry Oldenburg, to tell him that he was composing his subsequently infamous Tractatus Theologico-Politicus for three reasons. First and foremost, he wrote it due to, quote, the prejudices of the theologians. For I know that they are the greatest obstacle to men's being able to apply their minds to philosophy. So I am busy exposing them and removing them from the minds of the more prudent. After Korbach's death, a death suffered for publishing what Spinoza also thought, the famous philosopher chose to release the theological political treatise within months. The work was reviewed and called a godless document by Tomasius, harmful to all religions by Mansfeld, an atheistic book, book full of abominations by Van Blisenberg, and most famously, a book forged in hell. Formal and lengthy responses came thick and fast from almost every religious sector, including liberal reformed, hardline reformed, Lutherans, Anabaptists, and collegians. Everybody was upset. Because of its intellectual power, however, summaries were made of it in order to help ministers to learn to counteract it. Indeed, ministerial students throughout Germany and Scandinavia by 1700 were required to construct responses to Spinoza's hermeneutic in order to pass their exams. In other words, the problematic hermeneutic of Spinoza, the foundation of the historical critical method, was spread through the very scholars who despised him. The fear and the hatred of the clergy prompted them to give widespread exposure to error. So what was Spinoza's hermeneutic? Where did he err? For the sake of brevity, I'm going to summarize his relevant claims. Most famously, he argued uh, from the position clearly defined later in his posthumous ethics, Deus sive naturum, God or nature. In other words, he thought God is nature. At root, Spinoza was a pantheist who conflated creation with the creator. And his error only begins there. But he does not end there. For he also said that orthodox definitions regarding Christ are beyond meaning. Moreover, the spirit of God in scripture refers to a wind, force, or mind, and not to a personal God, much less a person. He said that when the biblical writers like Peter say the prophets were moved by the Spirit, it only means they possessed extraordinary virtue. The prophets, he says, were not endowed with a more perfect mind, but with a power of imagining, unusually vividly. He said one need not trust any biblical, historical, or prophetic narrative. For instance, there is no future kingdom of David, and there is no final judgment. In effect, eschatology was excised. And the supreme good, he said, was knowing God or loving God, which meant loving nature. There's so much more that he said, but note the following aspects of Spinoza's method that have come to dominate much of Western Christian exegesis today, such as these things. He argued one must interpret Scripture as one interprets nature. One must interpret Scripture primarily as human history, which requires adeptness with the original languages. 
One must construct an index of the text's relevant teachings, but without necessarily regarding the literal meaning of Scripture as truth. One must distinguish literal from metaphorical. One must describe fully the book's contextual matters, the author, the occasion, the time, the recipients, the language. And once the historical meaning is before you, he said, you must then separate the prophet's dispensable speculations from the eternal and universal teaching contained within. In other words, the exegete sifts the wheat of eternal truth from the chaff of the scripture text. The eternal and universal teaching of scripture, he believes, was the same as what is available in natural philosophy. God or nature is to be worshipped through reason, and God requires you to love your neighbor. That's basically it. Now, as you probably noticed, there is something familiar about Spinoza's method, but there are also fatal errors. The primary difficulty, as Peter will show us, is that skeptics like Baruch depend exclusively upon human effort and deny any need for a transcendent deity, that is, for the Holy Spirit. There is no need, he argued, for a special endowment of the Spirit to interpret Scripture. He says, and I quote, this method requires no light beyond the natural light. He concluded by arguing for a position that later became known as the right of private judgment. Every person is able to determine the truth for himself through natural light. Communal interpretation disappears, for without the grace of the Holy Spirit, every individual possesses immediate access to the truth. And this is both an errant theological presupposition and a naive philosophical presupposition. So let's move on to Peter's defense of divine trustworthiness. Peter's classic text on biblical inspiration and biblical inerrancy responds to such opponents of biblical truth with four claims. First, the Word of God is inerrant. Second, biblical truth will be fully verified. Third, private interpretation is errant, if I can use that word. The Holy Spirit, number four, inspired the prophetic word. First, he said... The word of God is without error. Peter writes these words. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Note that the prophetic word is itself in this, in this sentence already certain. Peter's experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, as fantastic as that was and as transformative as that was, had the purpose merely of making Christ's work and Christ's word more fully confirmed or verified further. Peter already knew for certain that God's word is true. And now he had the word reaffirmed by seeing God's, uh, Christ's glory and hearing the Father speak of his beloved Son. The Jews in Jesus' day revered their Hebrew Bible so highly that they presumed it was more true than anything derived from their human efforts. They didn't require experience or reason to establish Scripture's truth. They required Scripture alone. Experience and reason only served to further confirm what they already knew was true. The biblical Word of God is foundational truth. Experience only confirms it. According to Michael Green, in the Word of God written, the apostles sought absolute assurance like their master, for whom the phrase, it is written, Suffused to clinch an argument. Peter continues, secondly, biblical truth will be finally verified. 
He writes, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The apostle reminds us to enlighten our minds by God's word. Developing a metaphor from Psalm 119, Peter compares the Bible to a lamp shining in darkness. I think one of the the greatest misnomers of history is to refer to modernity as the enlightenment because it was actually the endarkenment. Scripture is that which enlightens. Tom Schreiner believes uh, the words, the morning star, draw upon the prophecy of Numbers 24, which says, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. The reference here is almost certainly to the coming of Jesus Christ. The Word of God guides us toward truth until we see the coming of the Lord with our own eyes, at which time biblical prophecy will be fully confirmed in our hearts. Eschatological reality will ratify the certainty of the faith we have now in God's written Word. Again, God's word is the basis of truth, and everything else only supplements that. But until that morning star rises, Peter requires us to pay attention to the word of God. The human mind cannot expect certainty from any source other than scripture. The divine word. Not human reason, not human experience, not human tradition is our only hope for illuminating the epistemological darkness we inhabit before that day. Third, private interpretation is errant. Peter continues, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. The key term in this passage, I believe, is the Greek idios, which means pertaining to the self, and may be translated with the noun uh, it modifies as private interpretation. Peter doubled down on his claim that biblical prophecy cannot be interpreted by human fiat, pointing out that no true prophecy was ever derived from the human will. If prophecy does not originate with man, and it does not, Prophecy cannot be discerned by human effort alone. He argues that both the origin of prophecy and its subsequent interpretation stem from God himself. The prophets who wrote scripture did not generate the text by their own wills. Likewise, the interpreters of scripture, you and me, cannot generate a correct interpretation by our own wills. Now, Peter is not saying the human being is entirely passive in the interpretation of divine Scripture. Rather, he asserts the proper interpretation of Scripture is a gift from God. Orthodox Christian hermeneutics always requires a humble act of prayer if it is to have any hope of success. Mind you, again, biblical interpretation still requires human action. After all, he denies not the human activity of interpretation, but the human activity of private interpretation. Knowing the biblical languages, diagramming the biblical grammar, digging into the text's history, discerning the canonical theology, this hard work is required of the faithful exegete. Nevertheless, these necessary human actions are insufficient on their own, 
We must act, but we must remain contrite and be receptive to and make petition for divine illumination. Which brings us to our fourth point from Peter. The Holy Spirit inspired the prophetic word. Peter concluded his defense of biblical inerrancy with an appeal to biblical inspiration. He says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Read that again. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Green identifies this as perhaps the fullest and most explicit reference to the biblical inspiration of its authors. The prophets raised their cells, so to speak. They were obedient and receptive. And the Holy Spirit filled them and carried their craft along in the direction he wished. Men spoke, God spoke. Any proper doctrine of Scripture will not neglect either part of this truth. Men spoke, God spoke. We may conclude from the overall argument of these three verses, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19-21, through 21, that the perfect certainty of the Word of God is a function of its perfect inspiration by the Spirit of God. The Bible's trustworthiness stems from the Spirit's guidance of the prophets and apostles who wrote the Bible that is without error. Note that Peter refers to the writings as perfect in their trustworthiness because they were inspired by a holy, that is, perfect spirit, the Spirit of God. Peter relates the perfection of the biblical text to the perfection of the divine author standing behind the text. Now, each of the divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, possess the divine perfections in their fullness. The eternal generation of the Son and the eternal procession of the Spirit result in the eternal and ontological participation of the three persons in the fullness of the Godhead. Moreover, according to this text... By His perfect Spirit, God shares His own perfections with the biblical text. The Word of God written participates epistemologically through the Spirit's movement in the perfections of God who is Father, Word, and Spirit. Alas, Peter's opponents held to a theological position that contradicted a core tenet of divine perfection. They believed the Word of God was uncertain, errant, untrustworthy. However, if the Word is imperfect in these ways, then God Himself is by implication also uncertain, errant, untrustworthy. Peter's opponents denied the trustworthiness of Christ in the Spirit, and Spinoza did too. Against Spinoza, and like Peter, we must therefore recover an emphasis upon the perfection of God and thus also the certainty, inerrancy, trustworthiness of the Word of God. Which brings us to our final point, the indispensability of truth and love. Spinoza erred in major ways, but he was correct with at least one theological claim, the necessity of love. The will of God for all human beings is that we love God and neighbor. If Spinoza's Christian opponents erred, it was not with regard to the trustworthiness of God in his word. They got that right. But with regard for some of them 
to the love of God and the participation of his church in that love. Divine simplicity requires that we diminish neither the divine perfection of trustworthiness nor the divine perfection of love. God is entirely and without diminution both truth and love. At the outset of his theological political treatise, Spinoza rehearsed his reasons for writing a book that subtly, obliquely, and consistently undermined the truthfulness of the biblical text. His real beef wasn't with Scripture. It was with the vicious clergy who used the Bible in fear to garner and maintain power. Because, he said, the ministry confers status, income, and honor, the worst men go after it. Through them, the love of propagating divine religion degenerated into sordid greed and ambition. And you can hear his life experience speaking here. Spinoza, who knew the Old and New Testaments very well, declaimed rampant clerical hypocrisy with literary power. Let me read you some of what he said. And it ought to convict us. I know it convicts me. Of course, he says, if they had even the least spark of divine light, they would not rave so proudly, but would learn to worship God more wisely and would surpass others in love, not as now in hate. If they really feared for the salvation of those who disagree with them and not for their own position, they would not persecute them in a hostile spirit, but pity them. Later, beginning his hermeneutical chapter, he returned to the problems he saw uh, with regarding the Bible as God's word. But his problem was primarily with the corrupt clergy. Listen to what he says. Almost everyone peddles his own inventions as the word of God concerned only to compel others. If they're worried about anything, it's not that they fear they may ascribe some error to the Holy Spirit and stray from the path of salvation, but that others may convict them of error, trampling on their authority and exposing them to scorn. He continues, but if men were sincere in what they say about Scripture, they would live differently. They wouldn't quarrel with such hatred. He, his beef wasn't with quarrel and disagreement. It was the hatred that came with it. But in the end, ambition, he goes on, and wickedness have been so powerful that religion is identified not so much with obeying the Holy Spirit as with defending human inventions, so that religion consists not in loving kindness, but in spreading dissension among men and in propagating the most bitter hatred which they shield under the false name of religious zeal and passionate devotion. I will be very frank with you. This is convicting for me, a Christian theologian. It is with such statements that Spinoza's cry to cur, his cry of the heart, touches the truly pious Christian deep in her or his own soul. Like Peter, the Apostle Paul was adamant that Christians preserve the truth of the gospel and proclaim it loudly. Read Galatians 1. But it is sometimes forgotten that he also required that we do so by, quote, speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 I once heard a Christian leader joke, speak the truth if necessary with love. Such nonsense denies the divine character who in his eternal simplicity is both truth and love. Let me be prophetic to myself and to you. If we pretend to be great evangelists for the kingdom of God, but we abuse those either in word or in deed whom we say we are trying to reach, we are hypocrites. If you speak the truth with hate, you know not the God who is both truth and love. The one who said, I am the truth, 
also inspired his apostle to write, God is love. The one who says, take up your cross and follow me, never said, put the heretic in your crosshairs. The one who says, be at peace with all men as far as it is in you, never said, attack others with whom you disagree at the drop of a tweet. And I'll be honest, I've done that. The same Holy Spirit who inspired the biblical writers to write without error is the same Holy Spirit who gives the fruit of the Spirit to characterize the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, if our lives do not evince love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, then we need to think twice before presuming our theological interpretation of God's inerrant word is the actual meaning of the inspired text. The spirit who inspires truth is the same spirit who generates love, is the same spirit who regenerates our hearts, is the same spirit who interprets the Bible. There is only one spirit, and he is perfect in every way, and he wants to perfect us, his people. My heart mourns over the Spinozas of this world. Rather than loving on them, too many Christians derided people like Spinoza. Rather than writing him about the healing solace of the Christ, too many preachers in his day lifted their voices to denounce him. The Christian philosopher Leibniz called him intolerably licentious behind his back, even as he praised him to his face. Several Reformed synods wanted the book banned as obscene. A Reformed opponent of Spinoza's protector, who was brutally murdered, also described Spinoza's book as forged in hell by the apostate Jew working together with the devil, which in its day had all sorts of anti-Semitism tied up in its anti-humanism. One of the friendly Christian voices earlier in Spinoza's life was his old English friend, Henry Oldenburg. But Oldenburg also declaimed his book. Oldenburg rightly wanted to defend biblical truth, orthodox Christianity. But try as he might, he still bent before the intolerant spirit of the age. Five years later, Oldenburg began to witness to Spinoza again. Alas, Spinoza died in his heresy. Though a few voices of Christian love might have sought to minister Christ to him, we cannot be sure from the evidence. But what if, rather than intolerance and anger, the majority of the Christians of 17th century Europe had emphasized love and joy in their witness to the coming rule of King Jesus? Do we today not remember that in his first coming, Jesus came as a self-sacrificial lamb and that he called us to do the same? Can we not recall that it is only in his second coming that he will return as a conquering victorious lion and we should remain lamb's cross-bearers until then? The writings of Peter remind us that the truthfulness of Scripture Its inerrancy is indispensable. You must have it. The painful life and unbelieving death of Baruch Spinoza, alongside the admonitions of Paul and the example of Jesus, remind us that Christian love is indispensable 
too. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Where I have erred in its exposition, take it away. Where your spirit has been with the proclaimed word, and my words have been true to your word, let it bear fruit in our lives. We thank you for your perfect word, and we thank you for your spirit who is perfecting us in love, even now. In Jesus' name, amen.